Good afternoon and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where we are committed to providing our community with voices of conscience from an ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior pastor here at Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and I will be moderating today's forum. If you are listening to us on Minnesota Public Radio, we welcome you and we invite you to visit us in person in the future. Details on upcoming forums can be found online at www.ewestminster.org. I am pleased to welcome to the forum today one of America's most distinguished statesmen, Senator George McGovern. Senator McGovern holds a PhD in history from Northwestern University, and he began his long and eminent career as a university history professor in South Dakota. He was decorated with the Distinguished Flying Cross as a bomber pilot in World War II, and later in the year 2000 was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom. George McGovern is perhaps most often remembered for being a senator who opposed America's involvement in Vietnam. He began his career in national public service when President Kennedy named him the first director of the Food for Peace program in 1960 a job that led him to 18 years of service in the United States Senate. While there, McGovern served on the Foreign Relations Committee throughout the 1970s. In 1972, he ran for president as the Democratic nominee. More recently, Senator McGovern has been the U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Agencies for Food and Agriculture in Rome. In his book, The Third Freedom, McGovern recalls growing up in South Dakota under drought conditions so destructive they made grown men cry. He, be, he be, brings this background, as well as his religious convictions, to his work today, partnering with Senator Bob Dole and others in an effort to ensure that children all throughout the world are fed a school lunch. Senator McGovern joins us today to talk about the strategies that we can employ as individuals and as citizens of an abundant nation as we work together to end hunger in our time. It is with pleasure that I ask you to join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Senator George McGovern. I don't think I've ever been in a more beautiful church uh, than this one. It's just simply uh, awe-inspiring. <clears throat> I, um, I grew up in a Methodist parsonage where my uh, father served as the uh, minister, so I know a, a little bit more about Methodists uh, than I do Presbyterians. But I recall a Presbyterian friend of mine some years ago who told me that being a Presbyterian doesn't save you from sin, but it does take all the fun out of it. <clears throat> I've, discover I've discovered that's true even with Methodism. Um, I think um, my first meaningful experience with human hunger <clears throat> did come in this country uh, during the Depression years of the 1930s. We lived at Mitchell, South Dakota, 
that's been my hometown all of my life and still is. And there was a steady stream of young men coming to our door. <clears throat> they were referred to as hobos because they were riding the rails uh, going west looking for work. Um, and they were hungry. So uh, almost every noon, where these uh, young fellas would drop off the freight car at the Milwaukee uh, rail lines, uh, they must have had an X on our house uh, because my dad never once turned down one of these young men, no matter when they uh, came, and he always invited them into the house to have lunch with us. Um, in South Dakota, in those days, we called the noon meal dinner. And uh, at night, it was supper. So uh, <clears throat> he would invite them into dinner with the uh, family. And I would watch these young guys wolfing down food. They always offered to do some work, mow the lawn or wash the car or trim the hedges or whatever. But they were hungry, no question about that. And yet, um, in South Dakota at that time, and I suppose the same was true in Minnesota and throughout the farm belt, <clears throat> good farmers were floundering economically because they produced more than the market would absorb at a break-even price. And so bankruptcies were ripe all across the uh, farm belt. It always seemed to me, <clears throat> as a child, that there's something wrong with that, that while many people were hungry and didn't have enough to eat, and I read about the hunger in China, India, other parts of the world, Africa, that you would have that situation side by side with farm surpluses that were bankrupting uh, farmers in the most uh, productive agricultural country in the world. That bothered me then, it still does today. And it's one of the reasons that I have worked very hard over the years to try to find constructive ways of utilizing our farm abundance. I don't call it dumping. I don't call it surplus disposal. That was what it was called when I took over the American Food for Peace program in the Kennedy administration. And President Kennedy said, we got to come up with a better name than that. Feeding hungry people around the world should not be called surplus disposal. So we changed the name and called it the Food for Peace uh, program. You might be interested in how that program got started. It was an idea that Hubert Humphrey of this state had been pushing uh, for a number uh, of years. He in the Senate and I in the House of Representatives where I then served. And Jack Kennedy came to Sioux Falls, South Dakota running for president to speak to the national corn picking contest. 70,000 farmers out there from an eight or nine state, state area. It was in mid-October. It was a cold, wet, rainy, windy day. Uh, 
Senator Kennedy was not an expert on agriculture, but somebody had written a speech uh, for him to write, to address to these 70,000 farmers and the networks and everything. And he was struggling with this paper, with the wind blowing it and rain splattering uh, on it. Um, to be blunt about it, it was a, it, he laid an egg. Uh, that uh, day. It was bad. And nobody knew it better than he. We got on his plane to fly to Mitchell where he was scheduled to speak to the Corn Palace. We, we were told of 6,000 people waiting there for us, jammed too deep into that Corn Palace. And he said, George, uh, I really screwed that up. What am I going to do with this next place? I said, well, Jack, what I think you should do and I'm an amateur compared to you, but I think you should throw that manuscript away. It's no good anyway, and um, you don't understand it, and neither do the people uh, listening uh, understand it. So why don't you just walk out there on that stage and say, I believe the farmers of South Dakota can do more for the peace and the health and the strength and the hope of this world than any other group of Americans if we will just remember that food is hope, food is health, food is strength, food is peace in a suffering world. And if I'm elected president of the United States, I'm going to create a new office in the White House called the Food for Peace Office and we're going to make a maximum effort to narrow the gap between abundance here at home and starvation abroad. He walked out on that stage without a note and repeated that thing word for word. Of course, I was flattered. I lost that election by um, a half of a percentage point, a run, a run for the United States Senate. I was really down. President Kennedy lost South Dakota, I think, about three to one. But uh, he called up on Friday night. I was, uh, couldn't have been more discouraged. I'd worked hard for two years to get to the Senate. Um, and uh, I went to the phone, he said, and I, here I hear this familiar Massachusetts voice, George, this is Jack. I'm sorry I cost you that election out there in South Dakota. I said, look, Mr. President, you didn't cost me that election. If I had won, I wouldn't have given you the credit. And uh, uh, I've lost, I lost the race. You weren't running for Senate in South Dakota, I was. I got defeated by Carl Munt, and that's all there is to it. Well, he says, I know what happened out there. Bobby told me what was going on. And, I wish before you make any plans, you would come to see me. And that began my uh, appointment. It was, it was one of the times in my uh, life, Reverend, when I discovered uh, what I think is a truth, that sometimes a disappointment uh, or a setback, a defeat, can turn out to be a blessing uh, in disguise. And that's the way that defeat was in 1960. I thought it was the end of the world. It actually opened up the world.
to me, and for the next two years, I traveled through 10,000 villages uh, around the world, looking at people of all kinds, <clears throat> coming uh, into first-hand knowledge of the problems of hunger and malnutrition uh, uh, in the world. And this is a very tough problem, but let me say that it's not as tough as some people think. There probably are some human problems that are insoluble. Apparently no one's come up with an answer to human conflict. People have been killing each other ever since Cain and Abel. But hunger is not one of those insoluble problems. This is one that we can solve in our lifetimes, maybe not in my lifetime, but in the lifetime of most people out here in this audience. We ought to be able to do it in 25 or 30 years. Why is that? Well, first of all, we've re already made enormous progress in that direction. When I was running for president 30 years ago, this very year, I used to tell audiences that 35 percent of all the people on this planet were suffering from hunger. Now that's down to 17% of the world's people. Even though we have more of them as the population has grown, we've cut in half the percentage of people who are suffering from hunger. So today we have about 800 million people who are suffering from chronic hunger. About 30 million of those are in the United States, which is entirely unjustified. Um, so we, we've made a lot of progress in this direction. We can deal with 800 million uh, hungry people. Uh, groups like Feed My Starving Children believe that, that we can, it doesn't, uh, no child has to be uh, uh, hungry, and that's true. Right now, we are producing enough to give every person on the earth 3,500 calories of cereal grains uh, a day. That's a perfectly adequate diet in terms of the calories. It doesn't count things like fruits and vegetables and meats and nuts and poultry and oils and uh, other things. So we have the food production capacity there. People say it's a distribution problem. It's a distribution problem in that um, 800 million people don't have the money to buy this abundance that's there. India, for example, was the principal recipient of food for peace shipments 40 years ago when I was running the Food for Peace program, we were sending 4 million tons of wheat to India alone. Today, India is a wheat exporting country thanks to the Green uh, Revolution. The problem is that millions of Indians can't buy that grain that is there. They can't buy the fruits and vegetables and other things. And those are the people, these ones that that uh, can't be in the marketplace because they don't have the money that we have to uh, uh, deal with. We have to deal with it in two ways. We have to assist them. When I say we, I'm talking about the United Nations. 
I'm not a unilateralist. Uh, the United Nations is the... Uh, <clears throat> the United Nations is the appropriate agency to undertake this task and uh, uh, with the United States in the lead. Since we're the leading producer of food in the world, we know a lot about things like school lunch programs and how to run them. We know how to run the WIC program for women, infants, and children. So we can be a senior partner in this United Nations uh, effort. And it's going to involve technical help uh, to rural people to improve their own uh, production. I'm not going to go into that in detail. You know the kinds of things they, they uh, need to improve life in the rural areas and improve production, better management of water, um, the use of small, simple farm implements, not combines, but simple things like water pumps that are missing in many villages and farm homes uh, around the world. And then they need direct food distribution for those in the meantime who don't have the uh, production or the uh, income uh, to uh, buy uh, what, what they need. When I um, was called by uh, President Clinton near the end of 1997 uh, and asked if how I would like to be a U.S. ambassador to Rome to the three United Nations agencies there that deal with different aspects of the hunger problem. I wasn't sure I wanted to take that task. There were other things I was working on, and I thought it might be one of those dead-end jobs that they give to defeated presidential uh, <laughs> candidates. But um, I had talked it over with Eleanor at great length. You can't stay married to the same person for 59 years if you don't discuss uh, things like these and get, get a joint input on this. And she said, you know, um, I don't know much about the, the job out there, but Rome wouldn't be a bad place uh, <laughs> to be. And um, that was enough to tip the scale. So after, I kept the president waiting for two months before I gave him an answer. I don't recommend that to any of you seeking a job, but um, he uh, was still there with the offer. And I had not been in Rome uh, 90 days before I realized that job was tailor-made. For me, it's exactly what I should have been doing at this stage in my life. All those years growing up in South Dakota, 18 years on the Senate Agricultural Committee, uh, 10 years as chairman of the Select Committee on Nutrition and Human Needs, dealing with the nutritional problems of this country, the food for peace job, everything fit like a glove in what they seem to need there in Rome. I, uh, I discovered when I arrived in Rome that they had had a World Food Summit in 1996, a 
185 countries came, including 45 heads of state, and they pledged to cut in half the number of people in the world suffering from hunger, that 800 million that I told you about, one out of seven people in the world, to cut that figure in half by the year 2015, 13 years down the road. But when I got to Rome uh, uh, a couple of years later, and then spent another year trying to see what was going on there and what could be done to improve it, I discovered they were making almost no progress at all. Uh, the number of 800 million in three years had gone down to 790 million. As my dad used to say, that won't get the train into the station. Um, if you're going to cut 400 million people off the hunger rolls in 15 years, you've got to take them off at the rate of 27 million a year. So I cast around for some way we could, some formula that we could get our arms around or get our minds around that might achieve that. I discovered there were 300 million elementary school-age kids around the world who were offered nothing to eat during the school days. Of that 300 million, 130 million weren't in school at all. They either dropped out or they never started. Most of those were girls because of the um, favoritism that so many countries show towards us males. Um, I, I decided to take a look at some of the pilot school lunch programs that the UN had been operating for the last 10 or 12 years. And I found that in those programs, maybe 100,000 kids in this country and 25,000 here and a million here, pilot programs, not nationwide programs, I found that wherever they started one of those programs, school enrollment jumped dramatically and the girls turned up as well as the boys, partly because when mothers and fathers uh, discover that their kids could get a good nutritious meal every day just by turning up at school, they saw to it that both the girls and the boys got to school. I can tell you it's the best magnet that anybody has devised to get kids into school in these developing countries. Everybody that's been out working there will tell you that. Um, the second thing that happens is that academic performance jumps dramatically. Why wouldn't it? I'm an old school teacher. I don't know how I could have taught kids that had to sit there for five or six hours uh, with nothing to eat. Even I wouldn't have been comfortable without anything to eat for five or six hours, and I don't need food nearly as much as a little child does. Um, the third thing that happens to the girls is this, and I ask you to remember this, because I think it's quite remarkable. These little illiterate girls that stay at home, no schooling, they work on the farm, they work in the homes, they start getting married 
as early as 10, 11, 12 years of age. I was in Ethiopia recently and I saw a little girl riding towards me on a donkey. I'm always interested in donkeys. And I, um, I watched her for a while and as she got a little closer, I could see that uh, she had on a nice little white frilly dress and a little tiara. And I uh, asked her where she had been. She said that she'd just gotten married. I said, well, how old are you? And she stretched up to her full. She said very proudly, I'm 10. Well, I think that's terrible. And uh, it's something that doesn't need to be because here's what happens. When those little girls go to school, even for six years, that's what I'm talking about here, the elementary years from grade one through six, they get married later in life, they have a better sense of what life is all about, they command more respect from boys and men than illiterate girls do, and they have an average, the, the, the ones that stay at home illiterate have an average of six children per uh, girl, and they are girls, they're not women. And the, uh, the, but the ones who go to school for six years have an average of 2.9 children. So you slightly more than cut in half the birth rate not with any kind of dramatic procedures, no abortions or surgical procedures, but by the impact of elementary education. And there's no exception to this. Every country where the UN has run a study, no matter what the religion, no matter what the cultural background, you educate these little girls and the birth rate will go down. There's no exception to that anywhere in the, in the world. So this is remarkable, but more important perhaps even than that is what happens to these little girls as they grow up. They, um, they have an opportunity to get a job outside of the home if they want to do that. They do a better job of raising their children when they do have them. We're told that one of the causes of uh, of um, malnutrition and bad health care and all these things is the uh, ignorance uh, of the mothers. So I can't stress too much the importance of this uh, program. Now there's a companion program that goes with this and that's the WIC program. Are you folks familiar with WIC, W-I-C, Women, Infants, and Children? There are three people that authored that measure, uh, Senator Humphrey, uh, Bob Dole of Kansas, and myself. And it's been a wonderful program in this country. It provides nutritional supplements for pregnant and nursing women and their children uh, through the age of five years. And that program ought to be operating worldwide. It's not all that difficult to set it up and get it moving. The World Food Program has trained field people in 80 
well-staffed field offices around the world, 80 different countries, church world service, Catholic relief, all these other uh, uh, non-government organizations are, are in this field, and it's um, something that we ought to be pressing very hard. There are 150 million people that would benefit from this WIC program, 300 million elementary school children, total 450 million, more than half of the 400 million we need to take off the hunger rolls. And why not begin with the children and make that the cutting uh, edge of our um, effort? Now, I got one more thing I want to say here before I open myself up to uh, questions. These are days when everybody's uh, worried about terrorism. Now in Washington, D.C., my old hangout, we have the sniper who's added to the uh, problems. But the central problem uh, is the one that uh, produced the attack on the World Trade Center and the uh, Pentagon. So far, our response to that problem has been largely a military uh, response. And I'm not against the military. I'm an old bomber pilot from World War II. I have no regrets about it. Um, I felt that was a struggle the United States had to enter and that we had to win to keep Hitler from taking over Western civilization. But um, it seems to me now that in addition to any of these efforts that have been made, the bombing of Afghanistan, which was supposed to net Osama bin Laden, now talk about war with uh, Iraq that's considered a, another terrorist uh, target, uh, possibly Iran and North Korea, the president grouped those three in the axis of evil. Um, all these things doubtless have their place, but I also think we need to be asking ourselves another big question. Why is it that a wealthy zealot like Osama bin Laden can walk through the slums of Cairo and the hill country of Afghanistan and the back areas of Saudi Arabia and recruit thousands of young men as followers who are willing to give their lives in this uh, struggle that is categorized as uh, terrorism. Um, I think that's a question that has not been thought about seriously enough by our leaders today. Too much talk about war, uh, Osama bin Laden dead or alive, and now that's been replaced by uh, the change of uh, regime in Iraq. Um, today's paper tells us that North Korea has a nuclear capability. Maybe that means they'll be the next ones on our target list. But I have the feeling that the kind of programs that feed our starving children are interested in, the kind of programs that I've been talking here this morning, if we had those programs operating at full tilt, 
in the developing countries of the world is just possible that some of these young men that despise the United States and hate us to the point where they like to engage in the kind of activities we had on September 11th, it's just possible they might have a somewhat different view of us. We can't be sure about that, but neither can we be sure that uh, pounding the daylights out of these countries is going to make us any safer. I have the feeling, I express it for whatever it's worth, that if we attack uh, Iraq, and it's quite clear they're not going to attack uh, us, uh, never have and probably uh, never will, but if we invade that country on the theory that they might someday have uh, weapons of mass destruction and that the purpose of getting those is to throw them at us. I can't imagine anybody that insane. Even a brutal dictator ought to know that he'll disappear from this planet within minutes after an attack like that on the United States. But um, I can't really believe that that's the full answer to this problem of terrorism that we, we face. Um, my dad always felt you couldn't stand in a pulpit without a text. If I were going to have one today, I'd take it out of the um, book of Luke, in which he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised. Now, we probably can't live up to all the lofty uh, implications of this testimony from uh, Luke, but uh, it's my hope that in God's good time, uh, we will bring some measure of healing uh, to the poor, the bruised, the hungry, and the brokenhearted of the earth. Godspeed to each of you. Thank you, Senator George McGovern. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, the moderator of today's forum. Today's guest is Senator George McGovern, who has just spoken on the topic of ending hunger in our time. While the ushers collect questions from our audience here at Westminster, we would like to remind our Minnesota public radio audience that forums are free and open to the public. For information about upcoming forums, you can visit us at www.ewestminster.org. We would like to express our thanks today to Feed My Starving Children, the General Mills Foundation, the Kellogg Foundation, Skyway News, Barnes & Noble Bookstore, and our many individual donors who made today's forum possible. Thank you. 
Senator McGovern, if you would return to the pulpit now, we will begin the questions. First question. The first question is about women and children, whom you mentioned in your presentation. Women and children often suffer the worst consequences of poverty and hunger. Does ending hunger necessarily involve raising the cultural and economic status of women and children? If so, how can we be a part of that without being accused of exporting Western values? Yes, that's a very good uh, question. Uh, I don't think we can resolve any of these problems of hunger and malnutrition around the world without raising the status uh, of women. Uh, we sometimes have a view, I think, of uh, the uh, male of the household out in the fields toiling in the sun while the uh, wife and mother is at home uh, rocking the cradle uh, under a tree. This is not the way it is in Africa and these other developing countries, especially in Africa, where uh, a majority of the food is produced by women. Uh, practically all of it's prepared <clears throat> by uh, women. Uh, women play a crucial role in the development of the uh, children. So that even a uh, hard-headed expert like uh, Lawrence Summers, uh, President Clinton's Secretary of the Treasury for a while, before that a senior executive of the World Bank and now president of Harvard, uh, he has said that dollar for dollar, the greatest return we get on foreign assistance is in the education of girls and women. And I believe that to be the case. Now, the, some of the UN agencies are really on top of the problem here. The World Food Program, the, um, the um, UNICEF, uh, FAO, the Food and Agriculture Organization, and they're providing that a certain portion commensurate with the divisions in the population of aid must go through women, uh, especially in the handling of food. Um, I don't think that's imperialism. I don't think it's unfair. It's uh, an attempt to apply just uh, guidelines in the administration of our foreign systems. It's probably better for the UN to do these things. It's, uh, they're a little freer from the charge that they're trying to uh, control the destinies of another country, particularly since all the third world countries belong to the United Nations. We've heard much recently about an epidemic of obesity in this country. Do you see a link between American obesity and world hunger? <laughs> Well, I read here the other day that there's enough food thrown away uh, in the uh, homes and the restaurants of America to uh, feed uh, a medium-sized country. Uh, I'm sure that's true. We, um, and some, some of that food that we eat, we might be better off throwing away. But uh, even better than that would be utilizing the uh, resources that go into uh, excessive uh, consumption to help other people. President Bush has said that these terrorists 
hate us because of our freedom. In all due respect to the president, and I, I wish him well, I want to see every president be a success, uh, I don't believe that. I don't think people hate the United States because of our freedom. I think people all around the globe admire the freedom of the United States, but what I suspect they don't like is precisely what this question has just touched on, and that is the obvious overconsumption, not only of food, but so many other resources that are in short supply in other parts. I think they object to some of the arrogance uh, and high-handedness in our diplomacy, too. But uh, be that as it, uh, it may, we know about the problem of obesity in this country, and we know what we need to do to deal with it. Several questions ask about linking population planning with the eradication of world hunger. Would you care to comment on that? Well, we're making some progress in that direction. The reason I could tell you a while ago that we've cut in half the percentage of hungry people in the world from where it was 30 years ago is because of two things. The Green Revolution and the spread of scientific farming to places like Mexico and to uh, India and to uh, China. Uh, but the other part of that is that we have extended uh, family planning uh, rather uh, uh, in a rather encouraging uh, way. I don't recommend the harsh methods that China has used to bring its population under control, but nonetheless it is a fact that they have a zero population growth these days. Russia is a little bit less than zero. They're having some minor reduction in population every year. So there's two huge countries that are not contributing to the uh, population explosion. Um, I think we've done a pretty good job of uh, pressing this. I wish our country would not impose quite as strict standards as we do on how money is used for uh, family uh, planning. We recently withheld $34 million from the United Nations Family Planning Fund on the grounds that it would encourage uh, coercive abortions in China. That's a falsehood. Uh, none of that money can be used for that purpose. The UN specifically prohibits family planning money to finance coercive abortions in China, and it's against the law for the United States to contribute funds. So this was um, a piece of deception that I found embarrassing, but we withheld $34 million that was desperately needed to help bring about some measure of the responsible family planning. What are some of the practical things we as individuals in this country, or our churches, or other societal organizations in, the, in America can do to help end world hunger? Well, every church has a world service arm um, I don't know of any mainline church, and I think virtually all churches have some kind of outreach overseas. Uh, uh, church World Service, I think, embraces both the Methodists and the Presbyterians. Uh, 
Episcopalians, all kinds of people are allowed in. Uh, so uh, uh, you can support that. You can make sure that your church has such an arm and that it's adequately uh, funded. You can ask that some of your pledge be earmarked for overseas work. Uh, that's one way. Um, you might volunteer for uh, the Peace Corps. You might volunteer for some of the other agencies that are uh, functioning uh, overseas. But those are just a few of the ways that come to mind. Several questions about biotechnology and how that fits in with food for the hungry around the world, and particularly when some countries are rejecting our food exports because of the use of chemicals or biotechnology. Well, uh, let me say first of all that we want to proceed with uh, caution and proper uh, tests and proper safeguards with new products of this kind. But uh, I'm for scientific farming. I have been all of my life. I've seen what the land-grant colleges uh, have done. And these new uh, uh, genetically modified foods, I think, hold out real promise for the uh, developing world. It's true that one or two countries have turned down American food products because they're genetically modified. But um, the Secretary of Agriculture in Nigeria wrote a blistering letter to the Washington Post some time ago and said, let us make that decision. Don't cut us off from the technology that you benefit from in the West, uh, in, in America. We, we need all the science we can get. And we'd like to make that judgment rather than have other people uh, say that we're protecting you against the evils of uh, genetically modified foods. Let me just cite one illustration of what I'm talking about. Uh, to about a third of the people on this planet, rice is the principal staple. Um, they eat it morning, noon, and night. The trouble with that diet is that rice is deficient in vitamin A. And if you eat that over a period of years, the chances are pretty strong that a child will go blind. Um, the other thing about traditional rice, it's deficient in iron. And that sets up the uh, possibilities of other uh, infections and illnesses. Two European scientists working in Switzerland have come up with what they call golden rice. It's called golden rice because it's yellow. And it's genetically modified. It has enough vitamin A. It has the right percentages of iron and other uh, ingredients. It takes less water to grow, less pesticides, less fertilizer. I think that's a win-win proposition. It's been thoroughly tested by the Food and Drug Administration. It's now being tested by the um, Rice Institute in Manila of the Philippines. But all the indications are that that's going to save uh, millions of cases of childhood blindness and other uh, illnesses. That's a genetically modified food. Let me just put it to you this way. I follow these things rather closely. I don't know you, you know that America is the place where practically all genetically uh, modified foods are grown, something like 75 or 80% of the world total. I don't know one American 
who has become ill uh, or has died or who has had a leg drop off, uh, eating uh, genetically modified foods. When you go to a supermarket in this country, most of the things on the shelves are genetically modified. And um, we've been a great beneficiary in this country of scientific farming. This is simply another forward move by science, as far as I'm concerned. Senator McGovern, several of our questions here deal with linking hunger and the lack of political freedom. Many nations that are hungry or filled with hungry people are ruled by dictators. You yourself in your book, The Third Freedom, write that more democracy will lead to less hunger. How would you propose that the United States deal with countries that are not free, that are not democratic, in which we want to be involved in ending hunger? Well, sometimes you have to do an end run around those governments and deal uh, directly with local organizations, the uh, churches, the uh, benevolent groups. Uh, there are some places where you have just impossible governments in power. They don't give a rap about hungry people or about discrimination against people. Uh, they could care less. And that slows down the uh, development uh, process. I do think that the more democratic a country is, uh, the less inclined the government is to ignore things like hunger among the uh, populace. Um, but this is a long known problem and one that's going to respond uh, slowly, but we just have to do the best we, we can. In Afghanistan, before the 9-11 uh, tragedy, um, the Taliban would not permit women to work uh, any place where they could be seen publicly. They were not permitted to go to school. Catherine Bertini of the UN World Food Program came up with the idea of setting up bakeries that were run entirely by women, and no men were allowed in the shops to gaze lustfully on these uh, bakery uh, maidens. And uh, the Taliban accepted that. And those bakeries did, did rather well. So sometimes you have to use a little ingenuity to, to get this job done. That concludes our time today. Thank you very much, Senator McGovern. Senator George McGovern has spoken to us today about ending hunger in our time. <laughs>